You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Friday, September 25th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Real Vision Managing Editor, Ed Harrison. But first, I talk the stories of the day with Jack Farley. Jack, welcome back. Thanks, Ash. Great to be here, as always. Great to have you. So, Jack, let's jump right in. What are you looking at today? Well, U.S. equities breathed a sigh of relief today. They were up marginally on the day, but this still marks the fourth week in a row. You know, it's Friday that the S&P is down on the week. Last week, there were over $25 billion in outflows from U.S. stocks. By the way, that's the third highest outflow um, ever. You know, whether this is a healthy correction or the beginnings of a true uh, crash pattern, we'll leave that to Raoul and the Real Vision guests. But what I'm focused on is that even though stocks were up marginally today, um, there was there's still a lot of credit stress um, in the system that's rolling beneath the surface. Yeah, that third highest outflow rating coming out of a Bank of America note that's been getting a lot of buzz on the street this morning. So, Jack, to jump to what you were just talking about, what's happening in terms of credit stress? Right. Well, on Wednesday, we actually hit a record of high yield issuance for the year, over $330 billion. And we still have you know, a few months left in the year. But risk appetite is weakening. Spreads continue to widen. Yields are now at a 10-week high of 5.98%. There was a $4.2 billion in outflow from high-yield funds last week. Um, I actually think that's the 10th highest outflow of all time. Um, so you know, I, don't, I wouldn't say there's a, max, there's a mass exodus from high yield, um, but we're definitely starting to see that credit stress sort of uh, poke through the lead blanket, if you will. So very high issuance and yet declines in uh, the number of issuances being taken up or exactly. inflows. Exactly. And what do you get when you combine that? Well, the Bloomberg Barclays High Yield Index is down uh, 47 basis points today. That's the worst decline since June. I think the same is true of the uh, Leveraged Loan Index, which, of course, is uh, you know more illiquid. So, yeah, it's definitely something to uh, keep an eye on. Yeah, lots to keep an eye on. Jack, what else are you looking at? Well, let's see. The VIX curve continues to peak. You know, it's arching deeper into contango for November as, as the election is, but actually it's peaking for December as well. And to me, that suggests that traders and investors are bracing for sustained volatility as there could be some doubt over uh, who the next president is. You know, I don't want to get too much into politics, but uh, sometimes you, you just can't avoid it. Yeah. Politics always creeps in during an election year. Yeah. And uh, Ash, just to switch topics, um, there was a printout today, the durable goods order up 0.4%. This is lower than the 1.5% that was expected. And I know you're a veteran journalist. You know what the durable goods order means. Can you explain that to me? And, and was this a good print? Was this a bad print? W what's your take on it? Yeah, you know, this is interesting. It's long-term factory goods that we're talking about here. And I first saw the data this morning, and they looked absolutely dismal. So 0.4% actual print, 11.2% prior month, 11.7% prior month revised. The consensus on this, as you point out, is 1.5. And the consensus range is 0.7 to 11.4. So the high end of the range looks a lot like the prior month. 
I thought I read the numbers wrong, Jack, because when I saw some of the stories coming out, I saw stories that were saying, uh, you know, this is the fourth straight month of, uh, of increase on this. And I thought, wait, what are we talking about here? This number is absolutely dismal. If you look at the decline relative to the prior month, uh, for me, it's decline relative to prior month below consensus and below the bottom of the consensus range. Uh, to, to me, those are never good signs to see on any economic data print. Yeah, that uh, sounds like an unholy trifecta. Um, we're, it's strange that, um, you know, that the stories are, that we're reading uh, are, have a different narrative. Yeah, I think we should start calling you, Ed, and me the unholy trinity. <laughs> I'll, I, uh, I'll be part, part of that trinity. Sign me up. <laughs> Jack, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks. Welcome back, Ed. Happy Friday. Yes, happy Friday. It's always good to talk to you. I know that I'm I'm standing in for Rao, uh, who is the the big draw, but uh, I'm excited to be here in his seat uh, to talk to you for sure. Well, we got the unholy trinity together tonight, so <laughs> I heard you talking about that. <laughs> so, Ed, uh, what are you looking at today? Obviously, it's been an interesting week. Yeah, I'm looking at. I think I, I was telling you before uh, we got on air that. I was thinking about the markets want to rally. That is today that we had an up day with the, the Dow to the S&P to the NASDAQ, you know, with the momentum trade being put back on. Uh, we it, it, Interestingly, we saw copper down. We also saw the uh, yields on the 10-year down below 66 basis points. So uh, a little bit of a, a trend in the opposite direction. But generally speaking, equities want want to rally. And I find that that's important to note because the biggest piece of information that we got from the real economy was on durable goods today. And as you and I were discussing just before we got on, the numbers weren't good. Uh, and you, when you have that dichotomy between you know very poor data and the market rallying at the same time, it tells you where the momentum direction is. Yeah, I also thought it was so strange that it was being reported as fourth consecutive month in a row for expansion on durable goods orders. Yeah, I, I think you were saying that the Wall Street Journal was talking to it in that regard when, in fact, uh, you know, I, I tweeted out this morning uh, that this is a part and parcel of increasing uh, an increasing number of misses that we're seeing in the market for economic data. So what it says is 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 that the surprise index is going to start moving violently in the opposite direction. Uh, Jim Bianco actually sent me something on this the other day that I, I was looking at that is very compelling in terms of how to think about Q4. I think Q4 will be significantly below where we are today, that we're going to start cutting expectations, both uh, for the real economy, but also for individual individual companies. And that's playing out in real time now. So the momentum might be up. The market still wants to rally. People still, they, they, uh, you know, there's a lot of froth that's in there, uh, but the data are moving in the opposite direction, and you have that tension which is building. Yeah, I think this is really fascinating because it comes right back to your core thesis, the core thesis timeframe, September, October. The idea that what we're seeing is deteriorating economic data, 
Uh, and in addition to that, you're seeing markets continuing to rise, uh, for example, today. Uh, and that shows you that there is a desire uh, within uh, market participants to push those numbers higher, even though they're seeing uh, this deteriorating data. And I guess the second order thinking uh, on that is, you know, that it's a lagged factor uh, behind what the data suggests. So it's a very interesting sort of complex systems view of what's happening in markets right now. Yeah. And so could it be that uh, 10% down uh, is, is enough uh, for the triple Qs? Maybe that, that's enough for people to uh, to start to leg into the buy the dip mentality. And you have to see a real cascade of negative information uh, to take that away, that there's still you know money that, that's on the table to, to be put in. And you need to have uh, you know massive amounts of negative data flow in order for people to start to say, okay, we're we're not going to uh, to buy these companies. Let me give you an example, actually, that I thought was interesting. Is that I was talking to Lee Cooperman. This is an interview that we're going to put out on the platform next week. He's one of the biggest investors of all time in terms of success as a hedge funder. Uh, he was a former Goldman guy, former Omega uh, advisor. Uh, he, he had his hedge fund, which is now a family office, and he was saying, "Look, you know." I don't consider Apple, I don't consider Google, Facebook, those companies cheap at these levels. You know, they're sporting anywhere between 35 and 45 times earnings. And he's saying that's because that's where the action is. This is what the market is telling us. It's telling us that's where, um, you know, these are the post-COVID com companies. And at the same time, we have earnings yields uh, uh, way down because you have 10-year bond yields that are way down. So when you have a 10-year, which is at 65 basis points, to him, it makes sense to pay 35 times earnings for Google, for Facebook. Yeah. Lee Cooperman's been watching markets for decades. Uh, I'm really interested to see that interview. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I was somewhat fascinated by what he had to say on that point. And he, he put the market into three different categories. He said, they're the fangs. Those are what I call the, um, the, the places where you're going to see the growth going forward. Then there are the speculative places. And I asked him, where's Tesla in on that? I won't tell you what he said, so you can watch the video. And then finally, uh, he said, there's the rest of the market. So it's the fangs, the rest of the market, and then the speculative fervor, which he, he doesn't believe is, is quite at its apogee. He's, he's not looking at that as you know, intrinsic to the market as it stands now. So there, there is, from his perspective, room to run. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a trader's market. It's a, uh, a stock picker's market, eventually. You know, uh, stocks are rich. And so you're, you're going to see a, a lot of choppiness over the next uh, coming period, he says. But at the end of the day, if you're a good stock picker, you can still make money in this market. Yeah. Talking of traders' markets, let's run through the numbers from the close today. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 1.3%, closing at 27,173. S&P 500 up 1.6%, closing at 32,98, just below the 33 handle, some resistance there apparently. And NASDAQ, the big winner on the day, up 2.27% to close at 10,913. So let me... Uh play three scenarios for you from here uh, after the September-October timeframe. Scenario number one is the choppy market that Leon Cooperman talks about, where 
you know, over a five-year period, you don't have a whole lot of upside. Scenario number two is where you do, you, you're off to the races and you can continue to see upside. And scenario number three is, is where the bottom falls out and you re re-enter a bear market. So those are the three options that I see that we have going forward. I think that there are two things that stand in our way to, in terms of thinking about which of the three options are going to happen. Number one is inflation. Mm-hmm. I think that the biggest differential between option number three and option number two is the concept that if inflation is high, asset prices go up because inflation has gone up. And so you can get this oscillator that Cooperman's talking about. If, on the other hand, deflation uh, uh, takes hold or disinflation is greater, then any sort of economic weakness will create a, a, a situation in which asset prices need to go down. And then finally, there's the upside scenario where you get the medical bailout as a result of that, the vaccine or productivity growth increases in a remarkable way. And then you can take multiples even higher from where they are today. That, I think that's really what we're talking about right now, those three different scenarios. And I think now is the time when we're going to start to see a shakeout in those three scenarios. Yeah. It's interesting. I have so many questions for you, Ed. I'm, I'm curious about what, uh, what the time horizon is that you're looking at for those scenarios to unfold. I'm curious what you're going to be watching uh, to see when uh, those scenarios are, in fact, what particular indicators you're going to be watching to see if those scenarios do play out and what might lead them uh, so that viewers can get a sense of the insight into what might cause that directional change. Yeah, so I'm looking at the near term. Uh, my, my feeling is, is that this recovery is very important in terms of how that plays out over the next three to five years. And this particular period is very important in terms of how that plays out because exactly of things like the durable goods numbers that you talked about today. So the durable goods numbers, what it's representative of is is it's representative of uh, the basing effect moving forward into uh, the go forward period. We mm-hmm. dip down and then we snap back up. Uh, that was the basing period where we snapped up 11, 12% on the durable goods numbers. Then that number could continue to go up higher, or you could have a phase shift where it goes from a vertical into sort of a more muted upturn. And it even could sort of roll over and go into a downturn. I think we're now at that period of time. The durable goods numbers is telling us that the fast growth phase is over. Now it's a slow grind upward or even a roll over. And so I want to see what those numbers look like, how much of a, uh, a, a deterioration in the rate of growth that we have in the economy, and does it in fact turn into a, a decline? So I think that's going to be the, the most important factor over the next three to five years. What happens right now in these next quarters. Q4 is is very important, and then Q1 after that. Yeah, so I hear you saying effectively that we're at a key inflection point and that the things that are going to begin unfolding in weeks to months are going to have an impact uh, on the US economy and therefore markets uh, for the next three to five years. Exactly, so, uh, so those three trajectories, we're gonna already start to see what those three trajectories look like. 
uh, the one trajectory, uh, you know, where it's upside, that's one where you get the vaccine, uh, you know, productivity is good, uh, you know, the economy rebounds more quickly. And uh, even though we have very high levels of valuation right now, uh, we can continue to go because interest rates remain relatively low and inflation remains relatively low. That's sort of a Goldilocks scenario. I don't really think that's going to happen. The second scenario, the one that Cooperman was talking about, is a scenario where, uh, you know, you tread water over the longer term, but you don't have the bottom fall out. And that's one where maybe inflation eats away uh, at uh, at uh, your purchasing power. And that is good for real assets in, in a certain way. So you go up, but also it, you, you sort of oscillate um, as a result of the impact it has on the economy. This is what he was talking about. You know, from 66 to 82, you round tripped it from 1,000 on the S&P to 1,000 on the S&P on the other side. Yeah, and he was actually there. Exactly. So he knows. He said, you know, I started my job at Goldman, I think it was in 67. And, uh, you know, he made partner in 76 and left the firm in 1991. So he saw that entire period and then the run up after into uh, the, the first Iraq war in, in 1990, 91. One of the great things in finance, Ed, is that it's one of the only areas in life where every year you gain a step. <laughs> um, so let's shift gears a little bit here. I'm curious uh, in terms of some of the shorter term uh, stuff that we've seen, flow of funds, actual market levels, we've seen several weeks uh, of declines uh, on major indices. Uh, and we also have this report out by Bank of America uh, today and uh, they're one of their data providers, uh, EPFR, I believe, uh, that states this number $25.8 billion uh, between September 23 uh, and uh, for week week through September 23, uh, flow of funds exiting U.S. equity markets. This is the third largest flow of funds exit in equity market history. Pretty striking statistic. Yeah, you know, I'm not really concerned about that. Uh, I'll tell you why. Um, I think that uh, the what we're seeing in terms of the market tape tells you that the, the market still wants to go higher. From my perspective, a lot of this is driven by technical factors, one of which we know is in terms of derivatives markets driving things, both uh, to the upside and then to the downside. But also, remember, when people have a lot of upside, in their portfolios, let's say you had a 60-40 equity uh, uh, bond portfolio, you suddenly need to rebalance. If equities go up you know, 25%, then what was 60-40 becomes something like 65-35 or 67-33. So then you're going to have to take money out of your equity position and then put it into your bond position. And that automatically means you have some sort of rebalance. So I think we're in sort of a digestive rebalancing uh, mode just as all of these uh, data prints are coming out. And and m many of these data prints, as I said, are coming into the downside. And yet the market is now showing you that it, it's found a level that uh, there's some support at. So the fact that m money's coming out of the market doesn't concern me uh, until I see, you know, momentum uh, in the opposite direction. Today, with uh, the Nasdaq beating the S&P, beating uh, the the Dow, it tells me that the momentum trade is still on. Yeah. Um, 
it's it is uh, it is interesting to see uh, for for a number of reasons. Also, there's a lot of cash on the sidelines still. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the jury is out as to whether those flows have any significance. I see it more as a rebalancing, uh, and I- I'm waiting just to see what the the real economy does to see whether or not it has any sort of uh, you know a residual impact, any sort of okay now we can't take this anymore. But usually it's the credit cycle that leads in all of this. That is that when the credit cycle starts to show deterioration, that's when you get the canary in the coal mine. So I look at HYG, uh, the high yield uh, ETF as the place to really look to see this is where bad things are going to happen. In particular now, because if you look at the difference between LQD, which is the high grade a bond uh, ETF versus HYG, what you see is that the Fed will backstop uh, corporates at the investment grade level. They're not going to really uh, get in and wade in and, and start en masse buying up junk bonds. So you'll see the the deterioration first through the bankruptcy cycle, uh, what Raul calls uh, the bankruptcy phase of the unfolding and that will be the trigger for any sort of move that you see in equities. Yeah, the liquidation that Raul spoke about. And Raul just updated that thesis uh, earlier in the week, now available to Real Vision subscribers. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not painting the picture as being all roses. I mean, generally speaking, I think that a muted recovery is about the best that we can get. And the, the, that most of the risk is to the downside. But... I'm not convinced that after 10, uh, 12% down on, on, on uh, the NASDAQ that we're going to see follow through today tells me that, uh, especially after the durable goods print. So we just have to take a look and see, you know, one day at a time, one week at a time. Yeah. So, Ed, what else are you watching? I, I'm watching the uh, jobless claims numbers because my sense is that um, the unemployment rate will actually go up. The The thing that was so incongruous about the jobless claims numbers that came out yesterday is that if you looked at the numbers, and there are about 900,000 initial jobless claims per week over the last three to four weeks, the number of people who are still claiming benefits under standard traditional unemployment insurance is 8.6%. Yet, at the same time, the unemployment rate is supposedly 8.4%. So the U3 level of unemployment is 8.4%. You have 8.6% of the people who are getting uh, uh, jobless benefits when not everyone is eligible for jobless benefits. If you include another, say, 10, 11 million people um, who are getting pandemic unemployment assistance, that's almost double the, the level that you have at uh, the 8.4% number that I was talking about, or actually the 8.6% number I was talking about for uh, standard unemployment insurance. So the bottom line is, is, is that the numbers, the headline numbers of uh, for unemployment are being understated. Or they're understating the real situation. And when you have a flow of 900,000, there are not enough jobs that are being created in the economy to absorb that loss of 900,000. So de facto, you should expect 
the unemployment rate to rise. I think that th that's kind of a significant factor. It would be interesting to see what Trump has to say, because my understanding is, is we're going to get at least one more number in October. Is it a second number that we get uh, um, right before uh, the election? I'm not, I'm not sure what, what the timing is on that, but we're going to see uh, unemployment numbers, and I think we're going to see them rising right before the election. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, let me throw an additional spanner into the works here. You know, there's discussion now about rising numbers on COVID cases uh, in Europe and in the United States. There's also talk of enhanced lockdowns, which obviously will be damaging to the economy by definition uh, in Europe uh, and as well in the United States, talking about additional restrictions here in New York City. So, you know, uh, I think this is where we get into the political, unfortunately, the political aspect of this conversation. We anticipated this before. I mean, you have a poor economy that is deterioration. You went from the hockey stick to a, a sort of a flat lining. Uh, you have unemployment rising. You have uh, case counts of coronavirus rising, especially in red states in the United States and over in Europe. And then you have uh, Donald Trump already saying that he is... Uh, He's against what uh, the election, all the extra ballots that are happening, you know, calling into question uh, the legitimacy of the election. And all of that is playing out. To me, that actually works against him. All of those factors, including the fact that he is uh, calling into question the legitimacy of the election. I mean, if you're an American and you're thinking this is the, the greatest country in the world or we're the richest country in the world, which many Americans do think, and then the president of the United States is out there saying that actually our uh, election process is a total farce. That's not going to make you feel very good. So if you're on the on the, the fence in any possible way, that's more likely to send you uh, out of Donald Trump's uh, camp. So I look at the potential for a, uh, you know, a blue wave of a sweep as increasing now uh, in the backdrop of some sort of uh, of, of contested election. And uh, as I was saying, Lee Cooperman, who actually has a lot of sympathy for Donald Trump, uh, he was talking to me about this as well. Uh, he, he has a lot of interesting things to say about that. So I'm, I'm just going to leave it there. But yeah. it, it's an interesting conversation. Yeah, it's it's it is very interesting. You know, I, I was uh, off on vacation yesterday. I spent some time lying on the couch reading newspapers. Really interesting to see how this is being interpreted very differently uh, by different political parties. You know, you had Elizabeth Warren, uh, obviously Democrat senator uh, from Massachusetts, saying, in effect, uh, Donald Trump is uh, is setting up uh, the case for becoming a dictator or president for life. On the other side, you have Ben Sass, uh, who's this Republican senator who's been critical of the president in the past from within his own party, saying, look, this is just the way the president talks. This is kind of more of a, you know, and I'm interpolating this here, but this is kind of just Donald Trump's salesman routine. Uh, and it is an incredible divergent of view, divergence of views, whether you take uh, what he's saying seriously. The thing that I thought was interesting was that Mitch McConnell, uh, who is obviously the real force in, in the Senate, in the uh, Congressional Caucus for the Republicans, is saying the duly elected leader of the United States will 
be inaugurated in January, no matter what. So the suggestion that uh, that Donald Trump uh, is setting up some kind of uh, wiggle room for a contested election when there is a clear winner, the leadership of his own party is saying not going to happen. Yeah, and I, th- I thought actually Sass's comments uh, on Trump, uh, th- to me that, uh, you know, the question is, is how do we remain on side? How do we rally the base at the same time that we don't, uh, you know, we don't create a sense that uh, there's an illegitimacy here, that uh, we're falling into banana republic territory, which would, of course, turn off some voters. And so Sass, I thought he was quite vocal when he said, he says he says crazy stuff about Donald Trump. Use crazy stuff. To yeah. me, uh, this is where we are in terms of, uh, you know, I I seriously believe that the all of these things are turning against him in a way that could be detrimental to the Republican Party uh, come November the third. And then the question becomes, what does that mean in terms of? Uh, the, the markets. I think that number one, from an economic perspective, it means that if you had, uh, you know, a blue wave, you would have massive deficit spending uh, going forward. Um, and is that good for uh, the markets? Uh, probably yes. It, it probably is good for um, to have you know a, a massive amount of money coming into the private sector. So right. potentially, uh, you know, it, it could be a, a a big game changer in terms of how the the, the ability to levitate uh, this market even going further uh, in, into the future. You know, it's interesting, but and this is always the tension when you talk about fiscal policy. Uh, if you have an additional fiscal spending, obviously that's stimulative for the economy. But if you have taxes rising, uh, it may potentially offset. Uh, some of those gains that are being made through the spending. So it is this this open question. You know, I, as you and I both don't like to wade into the domain of politics uh, too much, that don't like to express opinions. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to analyze markets and understand effects. One of the things that I think that uh, we're going to be doing more of, and we've already begun planning, is digging in and articulating what the different electoral scenarios look like in terms of their potential impact on markets. And that means not talking about opinion, not talking about rhetoric, but dissecting the actual plans that both parties have, analyzing their relative impact, and understanding the probability uh, of those plans being implemented after an election, which is an important exercise for investors, no matter who you do or do not support in the election. Yeah. And, and you know, the uh, uh, to, to frame it, how I'm thinking of it, uh, because I had the Cooperman interview today, Lee Cooperman, he basically said there are certain things I'm looking for uh, to vote for for the former vice president, Joe Biden. I was kind of shocked by that. So definitely watch that. He said, I'm looking for certain things to be able to vote for the Democrats. Mm. And if he's saying that, that tells you uh, that there is something that's going on. There's a shift that's afoot. And and to get to your point about the deficit spending and the taxes, I think that's that's where the rubber hits the road there, is, yeah. is the taxes. Uh, to the degree that you see more deficit spending over the short term, uh, I think, uh, as opposed to over the long term, something that will ju- so-called jumpstart the economy, 
that is uh, what I think uh, threads the needle. That's what people are looking for. I think that's overall market bullish. Uh, other scenarios are much less positive. Yeah. And these are exactly the factors that you and I uh, and uh, elsewhere on Real Vision that we're going to be looking at uh, in September, October, and heading into the election in November. Yeah. And uh, Ash, let me uh, put it out there. I think that what we should be doing is we should be we should have an election night or an election day event where we talk about what are the real issues, what, what's actually going to happen uh, to investment, consumption, and uh, and government spending under various scenarios that play out, and what does that mean for markets? What does it mean for earnings? I think that's really what people want to know. Yeah, as opposed to you know the pure politics of it all. So that's something that we should ask people, see if they mentioned the comments today. Is that something that you're interested in? Getting a bunch of uh, different people together uh, who look at these kinds of things and getting a, a, a multiplicity of opinions to get a sense of what does this election actually mean uh, for, for the markets and the economy? Yeah, exactly. Jump in on the comments. Let us know what you'd like to see. Uh, feel free to record a, a video and post it on the exchange. We really want to hear and understand what you're looking for in terms of election coverage, pre-coverage, post-coverage, what are the issues that you most are interested in a deep dive on. So, I mean, that's about as far as I can go on the politics of it all. Um, as, as far as the, the markets go, Ash, I think uh, we still, you know, we still have another a uh, month and a, and a quarter left of my thesis to play out. Um, we, we got 10% down, decent amount of volatility. I feel like, you know, it's played out as I anticipated, but uh, will we see more? I'm, I'm not convinced at this point yet. Uh, uh, the markets look good, like they want to rally. And, uh, we, you know, we just have to see what happens going forward. I think that... Uh, it, if if you had to if you put a gun to my head, I'd say that actually, for the next week or two, we're not going to see much more than two or three more percent down from here. Yeah, and we're going to keep an eye on this over the next five to six weeks, of course, during the period of the thesis and beyond. And with that, I guess it's time to start the weekend. Exactly. I'm going to go up, get me some beers, and uh, celebrate. Sounds perfect. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Thanks, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.